This is Speaker for the Living, a podcast where we explore human trafficking, forced labor, and all things related. My name is Seth Dare. I'm one of the hosts of the podcast. I'm here with my co-host, JJ Janflone. Hello, JJ. Hello. I just saluted. I realize no one can see that, but I did it. And now you know. Now you can imagine that. <laughs> so today, we're going to talk about the case of Centoya Brown, which you may have heard about in the news yeah she she just sort of her her story um popped up in 2011 and picked up a lot of steam but then most recently just hit again uh because on january 7th of this year so only not even 20 days ago she was granted clemency clemency by uh, tennessee governor bill haslam who because i'm not sure if i'm saying his last name correctly will be referred to as governor bill by mm-hmm. me here on out. Uh, And so she's scheduled to be released from prison then. What does clemency mean? So clemency means that she has been um, released from her charges. She initially was sentenced to 51 years in prison before the possibility of parole. She has Mm -hmm. served 15. So now what she's going to be able to do is she will be able to uh, be released from jail and then go on to uh, being paroled. So she still will be under parole, but she is no longer facing charges. Okay, and what is the uh, relevance of Centoya Brown to human trafficking? So what what first sort of got uh, Ms. Brown's story, because now she's an adult. Mm-hmm. It seems a little weird to call her, you know, by her first name. But so the reason why she's sort of hit in the news is that when she was initially charged, she was arrested for, for murder, for homicide. Uh, this was when, and this comes from an and incident that happened when she was 16 she was arrested for murdering someone who she said was a client of hers when she was engaged in prostitution or sex trafficking this is sort of the difference between the defense and the prosecution and so and she went to jail for his murder and had a very harsh sentence despite being a juvenile and despite her and her her team's defense that she was actually a human trafficking victim which is a role she has maintained and recently and we're going to talk a little bit about why, um, even though she, so she was convicted of first degree murder, felony murder, and aggravated uh, robbery, we now are seeing that maybe there was more to the story than that. So this happened a long time ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, why did it become a news story in recent years? So it popped back up in the news again. I would say there, there have been some stirrings beforehand, but starting in around 2011 and then finally on March 1st of 2011, a PBS released a documentary, which you can still access online and watch. I do highly recommend watching it. I watched it again last night on uh, Santoya Brown's story. And this documentary, uh, it's called Me Facing Life, Santoya's story. It essentially, it goes into her entire background, which is you know, I think sort of the definition of tragic, but certainly not something that's unique within the human trafficking field in terms of all the vulnerabilities and all the sort of traumas that she faced. And then goes into, you know, the the actual crime, her arrest, her conviction, and then sort of the beginning of, well, not the beginning, but, you know, part of the 15 years that she spent in prison. When this got released, it almost immediately started getting retweeted by a lot of celebrities. So you see like Kim Kardashian, you see Rihanna, you see a lot of other celebrities talking about what had happened to Santoya Brown. And in fact, I have a, I have a tweet from Rihanna that I would like to read. 
Um, oh, you also had like LeBron James, which is great. Um, yeah, in 2017, when it came back in, uh, Rihanna actually tweeted on, or tweeted or post on Instagram, I'm not hip, that said, imagine at the age of 16 being sex trafficked by a pimp named Cutthroat. We'll talk about that later. After days of being repeatedly drugged and raped by different men, you were purchased by a 43-year-old child predator who took you to his home to use you for sex. You end up finding enough courage to fight back, and you shoot and kill him. And then that kind of started this hashtag of free Santoya Brown that was retweeted by Kim Kardashian and Kara Devine and, and a lot of other celebrities. And so that started, I think, sort of this this ball rolling of her getting attention again. A lot of... There have been a lot of people working on her case, you know, sort of tirelessly. And then it got picked. So, but now that there's all this sort of national attention, now there's more funding, there's more money. And then eventually it, it went in front of the governor who granted her clemency. Okay. That, that overview was really helpful. So uh, I guess you can dive into her life. So what, what can you tell us about her background? Yeah, so uh, she was born in in 1988, and I think that's another reason why it really sort of resonated with sort of celebrities in their 30s or around my age, because she she was born around the same year as us, you know, sort of this end of the 80s baby, and I think, you know, you just compare where your life is to hers, this idea of being in prison. Uh, she was born to Georgina Mitchell in Tennessee. Um, her father is still unknown. And her defense attorneys at one point did claim that uh, because of her mom's drug and alcohol use, so a lot of drinking and then uh, using crack cocaine, that uh, Ms. Brown was born with fetal alcohol spectrum disorder, which means that she has some cognitive disabilities in terms of being able to uh, manage things like fear response and and sort of long-term planning. Um, When her mother got deeper into her addictions and was able to care for her. She was placed up for adoption. Uh, she went, it seems like, to um, the individual who gives her the last name of Brown. Um, we don't know a lot about them. This is when it gets really fuzzy. And at the age of 16, Brown, we know, um, and she reports herself, is living on the streets. She's run away. She's living on the streets. She's um, completely independent. Um, she had been arrested so she did have a history of being arrested in years before for uh, quote um, crimes against a person and crimes against property and that she had been involved um, in DCS the Department of Children's Services so she'd been living in youth facilities uh, in and out of youth facilities in and out of care homes so this is sort of all oh, right away you see this sort of this picture of a, a kid who's falling through the cracks which we see a lot in sort of trafficking mm-hmm. either of minors or sort of young adults, you know, that uh, there's a lot going on there. There's not a community. So while she's homeless, she ends up involved with a guy named Gary and L. McLaughlin, who went by the street name Cutthroat <laughs> or just Cut. And I'm not laughing because I'm sure that, like, he actually was incredibly frightening. He was a he was a pimp who ran a series of street prostitution organizations. So I'm sure he's he's quite scary. And we'll hear about, you know, that the violence that he committed against a number of people. Um, he reportedly, he, you know, he threatened, he beat her, he raped her on multiple occasions. He had other men rape her. He did this to other women as well. You know, certainly he's frightening. But there's something about calling yourself the word cutthroat that, yes, yeah, Seth is making a, yeah. it's like a Batman villain name right like no it's like really yeah like that's the, that's what you picked yeah and it's cut dash throat yeah and it's spelled with a k 
which I find intriguing. Um, so, and this is all stuff that again is reflected in in the documentary, and I do, I do recommend. Um, one of the things that come out and that in the documentary they talk about people who have seen it is that um, Cutthroat um, very frequently would hold a gun to her head and demand that she go out to, to earn money and street prostitution. So she, you know, forced fraud coercion at this moment, pre pre the, the, the crime that we're talking about that she's alleged to have committed and that she was arrested and charged for, she's 100% a trafficking victim. And how do we know about Cutthroat and what he did to her? Is that from her testimony, testimony of others? Her testimony, testimony of others, um, testimony of survivors who had gotten out from from Cutthroat and other people experienced, and then uh, uh, interviews that involved that pimp himself. And did he go to prison? No. Ever? I'm not sure. He didn't go to prison for this. I don't know if he's gone to prison before or since for trafficking. Okay. But at least when in regards to this case, no, he's never been charged. So then we get into, she's living out of an in-town suites hotel. She's supporting herself in McLaughlin via prostitution. It's not great. Remember, she's 16. So then we get to, on the night of August 5th, 2004, Brown meets a man in the parking lot of a Sonic drive-in. Trafficking happens everywhere, people. Uh, he, she's picked up there uh, by a 43-year-old man named Johnny Mitchell Allen. Now, again, this is this is um, someplace where I've, I've heard conflicting stories about whether it was a prearranged meeting or he saw her and picked her up. I've, I've heard both and seen both and written in print. And both, I think, are equally plausible in sex trafficking. We've seen that a lot. You know, sometimes people are advertised online or, you know, through other avenues. And then sometimes in the case of street prostitution, you know, I don't know if that Sonic is where you go, say, in uh, Murfreesboro Road in Nashville, Tennessee. I don't know if that's where you go if you're looking. Although Sonic is interesting in that uh, waitresses and waiters come to your car, right? Yeah, so there's lots of coming and going. But it certainly wouldn't be alerting to law enforcement then if somebody's walking up to your mm. car. So I, I, I so I don't know. I think each one is equally plausible. I don't know if it actually matters all that much, but certainly if you have the trial transcripts, maybe it did. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. So, but, so Alan was a real estate broker. He was a United States Army veteran. And in, in her initial arrest, what she told, what Brown told investigators was that uh, Alan, when he approached her, asked, what, you know, was she hungry? Was she homeless? Did she need anything? But then made her an offer for something that we call survival sex, which happens to a lot of homeless youth, which is this exchange of, if you have sex with me, I'll give you a place to stay for the night. I'll give you a good meal. I'll pay for your hotel room for the night. So it's not necessarily just money. It's it's sort of an exchange. Uh, now, this is still, this is an adult male soliciting a child for prostitution. This is a crime. One of the things that came up in the trial lot was, you know, did, what did Alan know? You know, did he know that she was under 16? Which is that and why it comes into the, did he just meet her on the street? Or was it a prearranged sort of plan? You know, did did he think that she was 23? Did she know that she was 16? Did he care about her? Did he care? Yeah, what, you know, what is it? Um, eventually, at some point, when Alan is taking Brown to his home, 
they also then decide an exchange of money. So he just he says that he will pay her $150 to have sex with him. Now, Brown says, however, that they never did have sex. Again, that's something that changed a few times. So some of the stories report that they did have intercourse. And then there was a fight or an argument. Some stories say that they didn't. So it, you know, some stories that they did, and then he wanted to have sex again. You know, it, it gets very complicated because, unf- you know, we only have one person who can testify as to what happened. And understandably, you know, she's a 16-year-old girl who's been through a lot and who's been traumatized and who at this time also says that she she was using drugs as well. So, you know, there's a lot of cognitive stuff going on. So, they get to his home. And then at some point, um, while in the home, she sees that there is a lot of guns. And this is reported in the documentary. This is her direct testimony. That she sees guns everywhere and she gets really nervous. Now, remember that one of Cutthroat's main methods of getting her to comply was to threaten her with guns. So you have sort of the psychological predisposition now to be afraid of guns. So she thinks, or she says that she was really afraid she was going to get shot. That he was making statements and moving guns around. And she says that eventually, in what she viewed as self-defense, she shoots and kills Alan. Now, what comes out in the trial is that the way Alan was was lying when he was shot is he had his fingers interlaced and over his face and was laying face down. So almost like, you know, sort of how you lay down if like you're, someone's going to like rub your back, almost, or if you're someone who sleeps on your face because you're a crazy person you know if you go down like that and so they said because of that you know it it couldn't possibly you know it seems like he was asleep or at least relaxed at the time of his death he couldn't possibly have been threatening her and then there's also when talking um to her mom on the phone while in custody and again i saw this repeated a lot like talking to her mom but the documentary wasn't clear if it was her biological mother or her adoptive mother or like a foster mother but like her mom quote unquote i don't know if that changes things at all either that she basically she says on 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 this tape recorded conversation from jail like yes i killed him Mm -hmm. so based on that narrative there wasn't an imminent threat where she felt like she was about to be i don't know beat her something directly and then shot him Except one of the things that she had also said, though, when she when she told the police right away, is that they, she says that they were being in bed together and he was making statements that were very threatening towards her and that she thought he was reaching for a gun. Okay. So that complicates things a little bit because that's that's her particular narrative, but that's how he was laying. Um, she also had, you know, the phone call where she said that she had killed him. Uh, she apparently, there was also test, there was two other testimonies that really hurt her at her trial, which was one, a fellow inmate who said that Brown confessed to killing Alan, quote, just to see how it felt to kill somebody. And she also threatened a jail nurse who also testified against her, who said that Brown had told her, I shot that man in the back of the head one time, bitch, I'm going to shoot you in the back of the head three times. I'd love to hear your blood splatter on the wall. 
those things didn't help her when it came time to her court case. But what have we said? Like, it doesn't matter about if you're a perfect victim or not. You know, it's... Yeah. Now, certainly, no one's arguing, you know, did she kill someone or not? It, it seems, it's very clear by both herself and every other piece of testimony that she killed Alan. It's just the the debate that then comes in is, were there mitigating circumstances? Namely, was she a victim of trafficking and therefore so traumatized that, you know, she's not thinking clearly or making decisions? This is sometimes referred to, like, when people in domestic violence situations, you know, the battered wife syndrome. They're not in threat at that moment, but they've been so conditioned to be in fight or flight that they make what we would, what, what lay people might consider to be strange choices. Was she because she's 16, she's a child, and therefore shouldn't be charged as an adult? And then in in the third place, um, what was her intention? So was she doing this for survival, you know, because she thought her life was threatened? Or was this motivated by a desire for money? Because what she does after the killing of Alan is she takes his Ford F-150, she takes $172 from him. Well, she takes his wallet, which contains $172. She takes two of his firearms. And she she leaves with the car and stuff. She abandons the car pretty quickly in a Walmart parking lot. Um, and then flags down, basically a ride from someone, and then returns to Cutthroat at the hotel. And um, their intention apparently was to pawn the guns for money. So, one of the things that the state claimed was that, well, this was clearly just, like, a homicide motivated by money. Like, her intention was to rob him. The argument, then, that the defense used, well, if you're going to rob somebody and you're in their house, maybe take more than, you know, there's guns everywhere. <laughs> there's money everywhere. There's electronic, you know, why didn't she take more? Why did she abandon the car? Was this just to grab the things around me and flee? You know, you're, you're trying to make sense out of human behavior. In a, in a very strange and uh-huh. busy situation. Okay. So what happens at trial is that it comes up that, you know, so she, she waves her Miranda rights when she got arrested, which you never do. I mean, my dad's a cop and I love police, but like, never wave your Miranda rights. So she's tried and charged as an adult, despite being 16, with first-degree felony murder and aggravated robbery charges. In her first trial, though, she's not allowed to testify on her behalf. They didn't talk about her childhood history at all. They didn't talk about her history of being trafficked. And they didn't talk about her having fetal alcohol sy- child alcohol syndrome, which is a severe neurodevelopment disorder. Like, it, it really does impair um, your ability, like, your cognition ability. The problem with that is that it's a spectrum, right? So some you can have the disorder... And sort of be exceptionally high-functioning or low-functioning or somewhere in between, have issues, you know. So the fact that she had been in uh, the foster care system, the fact that Cutthroat had had harmed her, that he had put her into prostitution, I mean, it comes in at a secondary trial when she gets a second trial offered and she finally is able to testify on her own behalf and they bring this history in. She makes the comment, quote, he would explain to me that some people were born whores and that I was one and I was a slut and nobody want me but him. And the best thing I could do was just learn to be a good whore. And that he sent her out repeatedly to get money with threat of violence. So part of the narrative that arrives is that was she charged as an adult because she's, as we talked about in the last podcast, because she was a woman of color engaging in sex work. 
you know, how, how had she been Centoya Brown, a blonde haired, blue eyed white girl, would she have gotten more media attention? Would she have gotten more services available to her? And also then this idea of her being charged as an adult rather than a child, which is weird to me because generally we don't, or at least not now, but we, it used to be that it was actually quite common for individuals under the age of 18 who were picked up for prostitution to be charged with prostitution related crimes. Actually, because of, of Santonia Brown, there, the law was changed in Tennessee where children under the age of 18 now cannot be tried for prostitution. It's automatically sex child, like child sex trafficking because you can't consent under the age of 18 to engage in commercial sex work. Right. So the fact that she was charged as an adult for a crime that was committed in the process of another crime being committed against her, which was child sex trafficking, is very interesting. So this brings in the safe harbor law issue. And this also brings in this, you know, should we be charging minors who have been trafficked with prostitution? No, because she couldn't consent to be in prostitution. Okay. And again, what is Safe Harbor? So Safe Harbor specifically, and I'm quoting um, Polaris direct, well, indirectly here, but I will put their document on that they've, they've done an amazing like sort of one white pager on Safe Harbor laws. But Quote, safe harbor laws were developed by states to address inconsistencies with how children that are exploited for commercial sex are treated. Under federal law, a child under 18 that is induced into providing commercial sex is a victim of trafficking and must be treated as such. State laws criminalize adults that have sex with children under statutory rape laws. However, these laws were not consistently implied in cases where the adult purchased sex. The result was children, recognized both under state and federal law of victims of a crime, were arrested and convicted of prostitution. Safe harbor laws are intended to address the inconsistent treatment of children and ensure that these victims were provided with services. And what functionally that shakes out is to two things, provision of services and legal protection. So one, that legally you cannot be charged with a crime if you've committed you know, a crime while you were being trafficked. So again, so if you're a 16-year-old and you've been tra- sex trafficked, you can't also be arrested for prostitution because you didn't consent. You're not, you're not participating in the crime. You're being forced to be a participant in a crime. And then provision of services, which means that's more than just immunity from being charged, but that's having things like access to educational programs, um, medical treatment, psychological treatment, housing, um, job training, translators available, all, all sorts of things like that. We've been fighting a long time in Colorado for stronger safe harbor laws. Um, that was Monica Peterson, our colleague, was, was very much involved in, in that. And we've, I mean, I know that we've both personally, I know I've certainly have gone down to Capitol Hill and thought about it <laughs> a few times. But so this idea of, of getting then protection in. But we even see this if you call back to our Wendy Barnes podcast. She talks about how she wasn't protected by Safe Harbor laws because she her arrest actually predates the bringing of Safe Harbor laws into this. Santoya Brown's arrest violates Safe Harbor law and, and violates actually U.S. federal law about human trafficking, which is part of the reason why she was eventually granted clemency. When it came out um, in her, in the documentary that they talk about, is that also sort sort of cognitively, she's she behaved at the time of, of the crime. She was about on the level of thirteen year old, 
mentally, so so much younger, and that she was so sort of, I mean, this isn't a proper term, but like so messed up from everything that had happened to her and the things that she was, she was doing that she couldn't really make good choices. Then after she's, she's been arrested while they're fighting for her appeals, uh, which is she's sentenced to, it's an extremely harsh sentence. She's sentenced to 51 years to life. So it's 51 years before she's up for the possibility of parole. That means she goes to jail. She's now been in jail for one year. Actually, by the time she's released, she'll have been in jail for as long, for half, exactly 50% of her life. And she, because she was sentenced for 51 years and not 60, it wasn't technically a life sentence, so she couldn't get it reduced. (laughs) So she fell into sort of a little legal loophole, too, which made people think this was a cruel and unusual punishment. And again, she was being punished for being a woman of color in sex work, though she wasn't in sex work consentingly in sex work. And when she's been in prison, she's gotten her associate's degree. She's counseled and mentored other inmates. She's had a stellar record. You know, she hasn't engaged in any sort of uh, violence or like ongoing criminal behavior. And... In 2018, it comes down that the parole board has filed saying that she would be eligible parole after the 51 years. And what I think is particularly interesting, though, is that so after this comes down, there was a police detective named Charles Robinson, and we haven't really heard about him too much. But she he was one of the detectives who investigated her for the murder of Alan. And in 2017, he wrote a letter to the governor saying, don't grant clemency to Brown. And what he said was, quote, first and foremost, Santoya Brown did not commit this murder because she was a child sex slave, as her advocates would like you to believe. Santoya Brown's motive for murdering Johnny Allen in his sleep was robbery. I have an issue with that because this is a law enforcement officer and she was a child sex trafficking victim now he could advocate for her not to have you know to be released because of concerns he had you know maybe he doesn't believe in adult child distinctions in the law or because he didn't find her story compelling but the fact that he discounts her status as a survivor of sex trafficking i find interesting and an area of inquiry because that means did she then disclose that she was a victim from the very beginning and no one listened to her you know, is this another case of someone who should have had a much more robust protections offered to her, certainly by her defense team, but certainly is this something that where the prosecutor should have gone, oh, maybe we don't charge in the same way. I do think she should have gone to like a juvenile detention facility or something and received services and counseling and training. You can't, you're not allowed to kill people. But... I certainly think that what she was assigned to was cruel and unusual punishment. I don't think 15 years, what she has served before the clemency was granted, was appropriate. And I think that's actually reflected in what the governor himself says. I mean, she's going into supervised parole, but he said, quote, Santoya Brown committed, by her own admission, a horrific crime at the age of 16. Yet imposing a life sentence on a juvenile that would require her to serve at least 51 years before even being eligible for parole consideration is too harsh, especially in the light of the extraordinary steps Ms. Brown has taken to rebuild her life. Now, 
that still doesn't address all of the abuse that she underwent. It doesn't address the fact that she was a sex trafficking victim who was charged with a crime. However, it it does, I think, reflect the fact that she was someone who was charged as a juvenile who, I mean, sorry, who's someone who was a juvenile charged as an adult that maybe shouldn't. And, you know, what is just very much a a racial bias. And that's been reflected with, like, the Black Lives Matter group in Nashville has come out and given statements in support of her saying things like, quote, today is just a glimpse into the world which all Black Lives Matter, a world in which black women and girls are free. It is in this world that none of our people are criminalized, especially not for defending themselves against people who are threatening to harm them. And so that, I think, is sort of reflective, too, in this, which goes back to this callback of what, you know, who, who goes to jail and who gets a slap on the wrist. And it does seem to be in the U.S. very dependent on race and if you're involved in sex work or not. And it doesn't seem like really much at all was taken of her being a victim of human trafficking until the very end. And even actually, I in if you read sort of the, the claims for why she should be paroled or why she should have been granted clemency, they focus primarily on the fact that she was a juvenile, not on the fact that she was a victim of sex trafficking, which I think sort of discounts all the stuff we know about psychological coercion and child trafficking victims and sort of the issues that they suffer with. Yeah, and she did, also didn't have like rich parents to advocate for her and no her she was it, this was this was all public defender until people in the through community organizers and then people who who got kind of got into her case i think um that there um was a push for also her after the documentary of people sort of fundraising for her and providing things um, because like for so after the documentary runs on the P on um, PBS, it was purchased and then ran on syndication by the BBC. So she got a worldwide audience. And then um, Charles Bone, who's a Nashville attorney, he signed up pro bono and kind of put together like an all star legal team on her behalf and pushed. And then with you know with the rise of social media there are people who are also sending funding and giving options so you really don't see though a lot happen with her case until she gets this attention and the whole reason why she comes to light and becomes the focus of a documentary is a uh, forensic psychologist who had initially interviewed her told the document like had a connection with this documentary maker and told him like you need to talk about this girl's story so it's really just it's a series of coincidences that led to her getting any attention. But I was giving a training this morning and somebody actually asked me, you know, what did I think about the Centoya Brown situation? I was like, actually, we're podcasting on it tonight. So I've been doing a lot with it the last two days. But I was like, but the thing I think that's important to remember is, is that there's lots of Centoya Browns in our local jails and prisons, you know, male and female. We have a lot of people, particularly in sex trafficking, but then also in labor trafficking in the intersections that it has with like sort of drug trafficking or gangs that make you commit crime, commit robberies and, and things by force, that we do see people who get arrested who are victims or who are survivors and we don't hear from them. They go into the court system and they disappear. 
Right. And uh, one of the issues seems to be with this is courts have laws that they yeah. follow in terms of sentencing. And that seems to apply to like that she didn't get a life sentence. And and so how they get categorized affects what sentences they can get. And judges have to follow those guidelines, generally, it seems. And then it gets complicated when you're talking about somebody where they're both, uh, in a sense, a victim and a criminal based on how people evaluate the situation, Mm -hmm. right? Yeah, and it's, and again, I think it comes back to, like, so many of our podcasts just run together. But this idea of, you know, who counts as a kid and, and who doesn't. I think we had a talk, we were talking about sort of youth experiencing homelessness, this idea of when you leave foster care under the new sort of TVPA and the new federal funding regulations, the fact that there's now transitional programs available targeting kids leaving foster care so that they don't end up trafficked is great because it's very rare that you, at the, the minute you turn 18, you're a fully fledged functioning adult with absolutely no problems whatsoever and, you know, good funding and support and a background, you know. So I'm 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 really happy actually that Santoya Brown has been granted clemency. Um I'm happy that she is is going to be freed because I think she should have been charged as a juvenile and I think they should have taken into consideration her her background and her history the same way that you are allowed to bring up things that affect your cognition and decision-making ability in the U.S. court system. You're allowed to do that. And one of the things that has come out sort of detractors to her say, well, we're forgetting about the man who was killed. And no, it's it's regardless of the fact that he was participating in child prostitution, I'm not for people getting murdered. You know, I I believe in the sanctity of life. But why are we placing him above Centoya? Well, it's also interesting when people choose to value a victim and when they choose not to. Yes. Like Trayvon Martin, you know, looked like he took drugs and other things. And so you had some people saying, well, he wasn't, you know, this glowing kid. But it's like, yeah, but then there's this other side. Like, well, I'm I'm getting into him, into that controversial Mm -hmm. pool there to say that there are some people that seem to think he was less worthy of a victim because of how he lived his life. Whereas this guy, Alan, where he's a buyer, he's a... Of child of a child yeah, prostitute. Like he he's he's committing a statutory rape. Like he he's hardly the most honorable type of murder victim. Mm-hmm. But we also say that there's no hierarchy of victimhood. Yep. So that's you know also present. Yeah. It it doesn't mean he deserves to be shot. Yeah. No. 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 Based no. Based no. on what we know. But it's it's I do have to wonder though how much of this is a racial component because what people mm-hmm. what what. People declared to be a sign that Trayvon Martin was engaged in in drugs and whatnot was the fact that he was a young black man wearing, like, street style. You know, had he been a young white man wearing street style, would he have gotten that sort of same, you know, uh, like, harsh view, if you will? And if you look at the, the, you know, the photos of them, is it that brown as a woman of color and Johnny Allen was white and because he sold you know he worked in real estate and he he paid his taxes that he is viewed to be more of a productive and and confident member of society 
than he's a yeah he's a veteran than other people. You know what comes up in, in the appeal. One of her lawyers, Cynthia Antonio Brown's lawyer, says, quote, this was a seriously mentally impaired girl subject to the immaturity and impulsiveness of all juveniles, but to a much greater degree, who had been abandoned by her parents and whose only refuge was a pimp who sexually and physically abused her. And that that should be counted in the same way that anyone who said, you know, well, Alan is a nice per was a nice person and and wouldn't have known. And for the record out there, uh, my opinion is there is racial and class injustice and discrepancies in our system, but I don't think that that means that every case has the same level of injustice or that, say, uh, black people always have it bad or that white people always have it good, that that's one of the reasons it's good to look at aggregate data and to have standardized ways of looking at the data so that you can evaluate it. Yeah, people aren't numbers, but sometimes if we were, if we set them down to that, it's a little easier to be, you know, it's not what we feel. It's, it's what the data is showing us. And I will say, for example, there's a memorial Facebook page called Friends of Johnny Allen. And after she, after Santonio Brown was looking at clemency, they said, our hearts are broken today as the governor has decided to grant Johnny's murderer clemency. The activist mob, with the repetition of Santonio's lies and slander, managed to prevail against justice. I take offense to this. I, under, I understand that, um, and, and their narrative is that he was a good Samaritan. He, he did not, she's lying. He did not pick her up for prostitution. He was taking her home to feed her and be a good Samaritan. If that is the case, he is—he was the greatest person in the history of the world because we, I've never heard that to be true. I have heard a lot of people, however, who have picked up trafficking victims or just people engaged in prostitution who have used that narrative. But I don't know. You know, no one knows. Well, Santoya knows, but... Well, and if there's that much reasonable doubt, then... That's how it fits. Yeah. And additionally, this idea of Santonia's lies... I haven't heard anything from her that has not then proven to be demonstrably true insofar as was she a victim of child sex trafficking? Yes. Was she a victim of an extremely traumatic childhood where she was abandoned by the people who were supposed to take care of her and the state? Yes. Was she being trafficked by a pimp who routinely threatened and physically harmed her? Because we have, yes, there, there are ER visits. There are other people who are involved who saw him threaten her with guns and violence. She was 16. We have her birth certificate. We have her history with, with children and youth services. Like, all of those things that she said are true. Does she, does she suffer from fatal alcohol syndrome? Yes. That's a, that's a medical condition that can be tested for. So, so far, all, all of her claims have been true. The only thing where this opinion differs is, was she picked up for the purposes of sex trafficking or not? But she was actually out there to sell sex and was still picked up and transported to someone's home. Also, he was an adult male in his bed with a 16-year-old. That makes me inclined to believe, not to speak ill of the dead, but that he was probably, it might be a little wishful thinking on their part. And so now she's going to be on parole for 10 years, right? Mm -hmm. Now, there's some people who also think that that's unjust and... I'm not getting into that, but I, I bring that up because one positive of parole is you can get access to some services and to some types of counseling and such, right? Mm -hmm. 
yeah, you you have access. I I do think that the way the way that the parole is going to work is that she will have to check in. Um, she will have to attend therapy. She will have to be present. You know, and, and kept kept an eye on. There are people who have a lot of disagreements with with how parole works in the U.S. But in this case, this is actually like parole is a part of clemency. So this is he's he's the governor's following legal guidelines. It's very hard to rewrite to rewrite law in that way. Um, the only other thing I will say is that I am collect uh, going to attach everyone to a com for from Heavy dot com, which is a it's called Johnny Michael Allen five fast facts you need to know it's that he was a real estate agent he was also a youth minister and so that's one of the claims that has come up that maybe he was approaching her as a youth minister and also that he was and as a u.s army veteran that he was he was inclined to help her brown has maintained though from the very beginning all other parts of her story about what happened that i just changed that, that she was picked up for the purposes of sexual services and that's never actually varied well, if if Jimmy Swaggart can pick up a prostitute, former televangelist, it's certainly mm-hmm. possible for a youth minister to pick up a prostitute. Yeah. So there's there's a lot going on there. And then again, what comes up in this article that I haven't seen elsewhere was that Brown had dozens of rule violations while in custody. And that prosecutors called her a dangerous person and a professional criminal. However, they don't cite the year that that was present, and I wonder if that was the first year she was incarcerated when she made that comment to a nurse when she was 16 and detoxing, <laughs> which if, you're, if you've ever detoxed or watched someone you love detox from drugs and alcohol. I'm not excusing that behavior. It's just that, like, I once had a beloved friend try to bite me really hard. It's just, you know, you're going through a yeah. lot. Well, and no offense to judges and law enforcement, but I've I've seen somebody that I know that was called a dangerous person who was like frail and ninety pounds and not a danger to anyone. So yeah, there it could be a lot. I, what what I think I'm trying to say is that there's a lot happening here, and like, yeah. will will anyone ever get the full complex story of who Santonia Brown is? No. Will we ever get the story, the full story of who Johnny Michael Allen is? No. But will we ever get the true story of who Seth or JJ is? No, people people are complicated. And one of the things, though, that we've maintained here in the United States is that people are very complicated, but we don't count juveniles as people in the same way we count as adults because of the fact that we maintain that they can't make decisions in, in, in the proper way. And so that's why I think, ultimately, legally, a lot of this came down to her being a juvenile at the time of the crime as opposed to her being a victim this, I think, yeah, it came down to her being a juvenile, and then it came down to her having cognitive disabilities, because those are both things that have been shown, and there's there's case law about it. You know, you can't put them, uh, famously, this happened in Texas, but since then, you, you can't put someone with Down syndrome who's committed a crime to death, because it's like, the idea is, you know, if you're not cognitively able to make those decisions, we're not going to charge you in the way that we would say a neurotypical person so there's case law for that there's case law for why we don't charge juveniles safe harbor case law or and what being a victim of trafficking or what being a slave in the modern day world is that's a much more difficult thing i think to prove okay thanks jj and uh, everyone else out there i hope that uh that helped you understand centoya brown more it's a uh, complicated case 
yeah, I highly recommend checking out the documentary because that'll give you a good launching point. And there have been so many different podcasts that have focused on different elements of this. There are there are ones that have focused on sort of all of the legal, you know, complexities and and differences in this case, which for me it's always figuring out like how how do you get a retrial? Like how how do you go about that? Like it's, it's so weird <laughs> and it's not my area at all. So there's ones that focus on that. There's ones that have focused on sort of racial or gender bias. There's ones that have really gone into the psychology of like what cognitive delays do for you. But so there's there's been a lot. I I just highly recommend this. Our little area covered the human trafficking angle. But if this is a case you're interested in, I definitely think it's it's worth diving in to a little bit more. All right, then. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Until next time. Bye, everybody. Bye. This has been Speaker for the Living. For extended notes and sources, visit our website at speakerfortheliving.com.